Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like Are you an overbuyer or underbuyer? A morning person or night person? abundance lover, or simplicity lover. And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast. Available now, free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Icons, did you ever watch True Blood? I was obsessed. I thought the men on that show, Alexander Skarsgård, Ryan Quanton, I was in love with him when that show was airing. And I thought it was just so good. And so that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the new season of the Truest Blood podcast. The Truest Blood podcast is fantastic. If you haven't listened before, it's hosts Kristen Bauer and Deborah Ann Wall who rewatch and tell true stories from the set of HBO's iconic series, True Blood. They discuss the episodes, the blood, both fake and real, and all the sexy bites in between. And this season of the podcast, they cover seasons three and four of True Blood, uh, where there's more werewolves, witches, and vampire royalty on the show. Plus, they have really great people who worked behind the scenes of the show coming on and talking about the show. Lots of that to come. I think we're all pop culture junkies here. And one of the things that I love about pop culture is seeing how the sausage is made. And so I think that's why we're all going to be so excited to listen to the Truest Blood podcast. So check it out. uh, And also check out the show True Blood. Watch all episodes of True Blood on Max and listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino. I'm super excited about the show today. It's a little bit different. It's all about the history of sitcoms. I have a very special guest. His name is Bill Carter. We're going to be talking all about uh, sitcoms, which I've watched ever since I was a little kid. I remember watching Lucy. I love Lucy on Nick at Night, which I don't know if you guys know this, but Nick at Night now plays like all those sitcoms that we grew up with in the 90s, which is wild to me. Uh, But I've always loved everything from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to Golden Girls, The Office, Friends. Uh, So it was such a delight to get to talk to Bill, who's an expert, an expert. He's a producer of the new CNN series, The History of uh, Sitcoms. And he also just did a show on CNN that I know I told you guys about a million times called The Story of Late Night. It was all about late night TV. Uh, It was one of the best things I watched within the past year. So 
I've always been a fan of Bill's work, his writing. He's an author of four books, including a book called The Late Shift, which was really popular in the the War for Late Night, which was really great. So he's an expert in late night and sitcoms. And so we just really dove into what the future of the form is. And uh, we talked about some classics like Will and Grace and all sorts of stuff. I really hope you guys listen to this because I think uh, it was a, a wonderful chat and I loved talking to Bill. And again, I've just always loved a sitcom, I think. Um, we don't really have many now on the air. You know, CBS is the only one really doing those um, those live studio audience sitcoms that I really grew up with. And so, um, you know, it's interesting where the form has gone and uh, the future of it, too. So we also get into the late night stuff because Bill's an expert. He's been uh, writing for The New York Times. He's been a reporter for over 25 years Uh, And he knows the world of late night, and that's why he produced that show for CNN, and he's written so many books on it. So uh, check out his books if you're into the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, because his books are excellent, cannot recommend them enough. And then uh, watch the history of sitcoms on CNN. Uh, It just started last week, but you can catch up. There were two episodes that are already out, and then uh, it's going to be up on for the next four weeks or so. So I can't wait to see the rest. I only saw the first two, and... And I just loved it. It's a great trip down memory lane. And then also, they have a fantastic talking heads from people who are in these shows. I mean, everyone who's in these shows or people behind the scenes of these shows, they really had so much access in this documentary series to the people that made all of these iconic sitcoms. So uh, it was a delight to talk to Bill. I hope you guys enjoy our chat. I will leave you with this. Please find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino on Twitter and Instagram. And speaking of sitcom, over on the Everything Iconic Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash everything iconic, I'm recapping episodes of Sex in the City, HBO Sex in the City over there from the beginning. So I've already recapped the entirety of season one, and we just put up the first episode of season two. You can get all of those recaps by going to patreon.com slash everything iconic. That's P-A- T-R-E-O-N dot com slash everything iconic. And if you donate $4 or more per month, you get access to the bonus episodes. I do one Sex in the City recap over there per month. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, and I will leave you with this chat with Bill Carter. Please enjoy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bill, how are you doing today? Great. Doing great. How are you doing? I'm uh, so excited. You know, I loved uh, your late night coverage, and I couldn't rave enough about the series on CNN. Uh, were you always a talk show fan? No, I don't think I was a huge fan. I mean, I, mean, I kind of was, you know, it was, it was on the fringes of my interests as a kid because my dad was sort of into it, watching Carson, and he was a fan of Steve Allen's going way back. But, uh, you know, I, I paid attention to it, but I wasn't a fan of it. But when I got to, uh, I got to the New York Times uh in 1989 and 90. And then I started to get way more into uh, Letterman. And, uh, and then the, the whole thing happened just, you know, out of the blue, Carson stepped down and I was like, Oh, this is a great story. It's a great New York story. And I was covering it just for the daily paper. And people are telling me, you can't believe what's really going on here. There's a book in this. <laughs> and that sort of opened me up to all the amazing stories that were going on. Right. I want to talk a little bit more about late night in a bit, but I got to get to the history of sitcoms. What's your what's your past experience with sitcoms? Did you love them growing up? Well, or talk to me about that. Well, it's real interesting because one thing that we found throughout doing the series is that when you interview the people who were in them, they basically have the same experience that I had and that many people had growing up. You know, 
the, the old sitcoms were on in syndication. So you watched them after school. You know, you could see Lucy or the Honeymooners or Dick Van Dyke show. Right. And then when you appreciated them, then you started to watch the, the real one, the live ones, the, the ones in primetime. And my, again, my dad was a big fan of a lot of those. So that opened the door to a lot of the light comedy. And uh, and I really did become a person who really appreciated that genre. And so I really felt when this came up that I had some really great experience because also as I took up my job writing about TV, I talked to a lot of the great practitioners from both the past and the, and the present from, you know, going back to, to the Van Dyke era and Mary Tyler Moore to um, Cheers and, and shows like that, which I got to be very, very familiar with and close to the people involved. I saw the first two episodes, and it's amazing the access the show has to so many people who are involved in the creation of uh, so many of these legendary sitcoms. Uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me, uh, we talk a lot on the show about representation and sort of looking at sitcoms through the lens of representation and how impactful I'm a queer person and how impactful uh, seeing a queer person on a sitcom uh, how it translates to uh, America in so many ways. I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about about what you found in terms of representation. Well, it's one of the interesting things we did. We decided sitcoms are so huge in number and vast in their reach that you have to kind of categorize them in order to sort of examine them. So we did, the, in, the, in the first night, there's two episodes that are going to be shown, uh, and that's on July 11th, starting at 9 o'clock. So one is about family sitcoms, which we're all familiar with, the great family sitcoms from all the family and modern family to Cosby Show and all of that. But then we also wanted to look at themes of race, diversity, uh, obviously gender identification, all of which sitcoms were very important in opening doors. And what was fascinating was, particularly in terms of you know, sexual orientation and things like that, the sitcom obviously couldn't go there when it was first starting this, but it went there in subtle ways. It did go there in subtle ways. And there were characters certainly that gay people would recognize. I know that character, you know, Paul Lind, that's a gay character. Nobody's saying he's gay, but everybody knows it. And they were able to sort of do that and get away with it, so to speak. No one was criticizing for it. So they could then push and push a little bit more. And certainly some of the, some of the more you know adventurous of these producers like Norman Lear, he's going to go out and do a story about it. And, you know, he does a very memorable story about a gay character on, on all in the family. So it, it was partly because America was more ready for it, but they liked the characters. They liked sitcoms. They enjoyed it. And in a comedy context, it's more acceptable. It really is. People are laughing and saying, yeah, this is kind of fun. It's kind of, I'm not offended by it. it. I get it. I understand. I think it's been very important in that context. You know, I, as I was watching this, the episode on uh, sexuality, I was thinking about as a young boy, I was closeted living in Ohio. And I remember a family friend talking about Will and Grace. And I think sometimes uh, so many years have gone by, we forget the impact that specifically that show has had. Uh, but I remember a, a family friend who was very buttoned up and conservative talking about how much she loved those characters. And there was a part of me hearing that conversation, even though I wasn't out, thinking to myself, oh my gosh, that is making me feel a little less uh, scared about my future, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely. And and I that story of that show is very interesting because NBC had put on the best comedies of, of the of its generation for sure. Uh, you know, and done and done sort of gay themes in some shows, but now a, a show with that as a central part of its basic format was daring and interestingly, the top executive at the time was a guy named Bob Wright. He ran NBC. Bob Wright's a very conservative Republican guy, right? But he also he kind of appreciated comedy. Like he got Conan O'Brien before any, anybody his age did. He just did. And he saw the pilot of that in their in their pilot screens, and he said, "We have to put this on. This is really good." It yes, it was breaking ground, but it was really good, and and that was the standard that you should follow. Okay, we're we're doing something a little daring, but the basics of it is it's a very funny show that people will relate to. And then uh, getting even more detailed with uh, Modern Family and and the connection that that show had with marriage equality was was right. so fascinating to watch. Yep. And and Steve Levitan, the creator of that show, is, is on the show talking about that and how when they were casting that, they were like, how do we match these guys up? And is, it really was great. It was great, great storytelling. This might be a tough question for you, but is there one that you look at a sitcom as the most influential or a few that you think those are by far the most influential on the American landscape? There's a few that you can't deny. You can't deny the, the influence of I Love Lucy. Because, because the way it was shot, that became a show you could watch forever. And that opened that door to people to say, you know, if you do a really great show, it doesn't just run once. People can keep watching it. And Desi Arnaz was a total pioneer in saying, I'm going to put this on film and we're going to be, I'm going to have an audience and we're going to make it distinctive in that way. And that was a breakthrough show. And certainly her performances for all time, right? The best. Absolute incredible performance. I think the Dick Van Dyke show is an incredible, great classic show. Great classic show because it mixes the workplace and the family. And that was not originally the concept, but the original concept was going to be the workplace because Carl Reiner had worked for Sid Caesar and that was the theme he was going for. But Mary Tyler Moore walked in and he's like, oh, we got to use her. <laughs> we got to use her. So that was incredibly influential. Now, and all in the family and everyone talks about it in the show is so groundbreaking for its time. I mean, so crazy groundbreaking that so much flows from that. So much flows from that, including, you know, we're, we'll start a show that is a, completely with black characters after that. We'll start a show with black characters who are well off. That was all because all in the family broke through all of those barriers. So enormously fantastically influential show i think you know i i'm a huge fan of seinfeld i think seinfeld is a brilliant show and why it was groundbreaking was it threw out all of the stuff about we're gonna we're gonna make this important and it just said we are going to be funny non-stop non-stop funny and that to me is the essence of great comedy if you if you want if you say i'm i'm a sitcom you better have come you better you better deliver and that show delivered in such an enormous way. And then I would mention The Office because I think The Office captured for for especially younger guys who first gravitated to that show, just the honesty of how it showed people reacting to people because of that fake documentary style and the the way it made people cringe and laugh at the same time. 
incredible stuff. You know, one of my favorite shows is a show called The Comeback, which I'm not even sure is considered a, a sitcom, but I, I remember watching it early on, and I was so invested in the cringe factor of that show. But I oftentimes recommend it to people, and I understand some people can't handle that. And particularly Absolutely. with The Office, I remember when that first came on, I also loved it, but uh, it, I think I was in college when it came out. My, my roommate, Kenny, and I would watch it, and half the dorm people didn't like it at the time. And now it's hard to imagine that people wouldn't like the office, but I remember showing it to people and it was too cringy, but now as the exactly. shows have evolved, people can ex- accept that style a bit more. I, I remember being a kid and, and watching with my older brother. And when there'd be a scene where a person was doing something that was really embarrassing to them, we would sort of recoil like, Oh no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You know, and I think there's sort of a natural instinct to that, that the office just embraced that, just went for it. And, and once it broke through, I think people really dug that aspect. Did you check out WandaVision at all on Disney Plus? Yes. It broke down a lot. What did you yeah. What did you make of that? Did you like it? Well, what, the, the first episode, which was the kind of mock sitcom, I thought was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Really brilliant. But as it got more into the backstory of wanda and what's the guy's name i forget uh, the guy's vision, name. vision vision right? Yeah, yeah. He's vision right yeah and they are marvel characters i'm not i wasn't familiar with them i honestly didn't know who they were so it kind of lost me a little with that because i wasn't i didn't relate to it and to be honest i'm not a fan of comic book entertainment i'm just just not some that appeals to me so i found myself liking the the comedy more than that Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I preferred those earlier episodes. It sort of devolved into a, a classic Marvel, which is, you know, great in other ways. But great I love people the, who like it. I, yeah. I have nothing against it. I'm, it's just not what I uh, t- hits my taste. Bill, as an expert, what do you think of the current state of the sitcom? Okay, that is really an interesting question, and and one that we don't grapple with a whole lot in this, but. Because we had the, all this time, and I was interviewed for the for the documentary, I did talk about. It. I, don't, I don't think much of what we I said got into it, but I think it's really too bad <laughs> that the, the comedy is very creative now. That's not what's too bad. What's too bad is that what is great about the sitcom is not being observed very actively. And what I mean by that is, yes, tell interesting stories and use interesting characters, but Make it do use jokes, make it funny. If you can, like I said earlier, if you make it funny, you can make your points so much more effectively. And you just don't see the style anymore where people over long periods of time get to know characters so well that when they enter a scene before they say the joke, the you're, you're laughing because you know what's going to come out of that character's mouth. And that is what a great comedy, a comedy like everybody loves Raymond, for example, right? which I thought was an incredibly well-crafted sitcom, formal sitcom. The mother's character is so well-defined that you are laughing before she delivers the joke. And all great characters, the Fonz, every character that you know, you can do that with that. And one of the things that's happened now is even when you have a very effective comedy, they do maybe eight a year. And they do maybe eight. They don't do 22. So you don't, you're never going to have cheers with, 11 seasons and 250 episodes that you can dive into or another generation can dive into and say, wow, I'm going to binge. I can watch 20 of these at a time. They're so good. And I think that's being lost. And I, and I 
I think that's too bad. It's a shame because this format is not, it's not new. I mean, I mean, Noel Coward was writing sitcoms, you know, that's what he was writing. He was writing them for, you know, aristocrats. Uh, uh, so was Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde was writing sitcoms and so was Shakespeare. Shakespeare was writing sitcoms and they continue to play because if they're well-crafted, they will continue to make people laugh. And that is the essence of the art. Let's take a quick break here and then we'll come back with more from Bill Carter. Have you ever experienced a dry, itchy scalp or ever wondered why your color isn't lasting as long as your hairdresser promised? Well, unfiltered mineral-filled water could be the reason why. Did you know hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin? And that about 85% of the United States uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered showerhead comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered showerhead. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, my listeners can use code EVERYTHINGICONIC, all together one word, at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. This episode is sponsored by Los Angeles Tourism. Now, y'all know I'm from the Midwest, but I've lived in California for so long, and I truly do love it here in LA. There's so much to do. My parents were just in town and said the same thing, because we always have something to do when they visit. There's so much good food and drink here. There's lots of pop-ups, rooftop bars, year-round alfresco dining. I love being able to eat outside here all the time, but they really have so many different food options uh, that you can get all the time. Tons of great shopping and fashion. Uh, they just opened up a new shopping center right across the street from where we live. And it's just fantastic to be able to walk there. I love that. I love having the sun. I love the attractions, the studios, the lifestyle. You get all the Hollywood pop culture stuff that I certainly love so much. Uh, and also, you just get the wonderful weather. It's really a fantastic place. So I want to encourage you all to head to discoverla.com. Again, need more ideas for your next visit? Just head to discoverla.com. Ever since I saw Clueless, I wanted to have the most amazing wardrobe, and that includes all of the clothes inside the wardrobe closet, and that's why I'm excited to talk to you about Quince. Now, Quince has you covered with truly timeless pieces that never go out of style. You'll have them in your closet forever. Quince has all sorts of must-haves. I'm talking uh, Mongolian cashmere crewneck sweaters from $50. I have a blue cashmere crewneck sweater I got from them that I get so many compliments on all the time. I love it. Plus, iconic 100% leather jackets and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes us savings all over to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, 
and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Love that. Makes you feel good about shopping with Quince. Uh, again, I've gotten a lot of stuff there. Just uh, good quality pieces and a lot of different options if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe. So indulge in the affordable luxury. Go to Quince.com slash iconic for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash iconic to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash iconic. There was so much talk with the Friends reunion on HBO Max, which I thought was great, and it made me, it reminded me that I feel like there aren't a lot of sitcoms uh, on the air anymore. And uh, is there no. one that you think is, like, the last great one? Like, what do you think is the most recent well, great one? The last great ones that in terms of measuring measuring how their success were, were Modern Family and Big Bang Theory, which ran long periods of time, were hugely rated, usually popular, and have many, many episodes and will play forever. After that, we have not seen a show because of the limitations of network television that is going to hit that mark. It's just not going to. NBC had a show called Superstore, which, which was a very well-crafted sitcom of its form. I don't think many people saw it. It stayed on for five years. And when it went off the air last year, I was like, this show's been on five years? Wow. Like, I, I, it was remarkable. But, but people who watched the show really liked it and really thought it was funny. It, it didn't get me because I'm hardly ever watching network TV anymore. And that's one of the problems. You don't, you don't get to the idea that maybe I could watch this 10 or 20 times a year. And, I, and NBC, which is the home of so many of these great comedies, does not even have one on its fall schedule, not even one comedy. And I, but I hesitate to say, therefore, it's dead. Because if somebody breaks the code and figures out how to do Seinfeld or Friends orig- and an original version for Netflix or Amazon, it's going to break. It's going to break. I just think it will. Because... There's, it's the form is too rich. That's that's the way I feel about it. You know, over the past year too, I think so many of us were craving the familiarity of a sitcom, and I know in, in my own uh, household, we went back to shows like The Golden Girls. We we watched a show called Happy Endings, which ran for a very short yeah. period of time. But good show made, though. Yeah, it was so great, and I wonder. Um, I mean, that was an example. I wonder if that'll continue to pick up now that it's on Netflix or, or Superstore even. Maybe if one somehow that catches on in the streaming era. Well, this is what's interesting, because if you think about what works on, if you look at Netflix and, and look what many of these old network sitcoms are huge on Netflix. If, and when Friends was on Netflix, for example, my wife's two young nieces who are, you know, tweens, right, 12 year olds or whatever. They came to my house and they were like, you have Netflix? Yes. And they went and they ran in and they started watching Friends nonstop, nonstop. And I was like, you should get a message, everybody. Get the message. If you hit with one of these, you're going to sell more subscriptions. So it should it's something that should be done. But, you know, the form that, you know, the difference between the multicam and the single camera comedy. Right. Right. And at some point in time, the multicam became passe looking it people were like oh there's people laughing it's a laugh track it wasn't really a laugh track they performed it in front of an audience it was like a play and there was an audience there and they would laugh and and they and that's out that 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 tends to not be done at all cbs tries it but it's not really done and if you look at the ones that are considered the 20 classic sitcoms of all time there's probably 18 of them that are multi-camera comedies because 
it's if it's like going back to see Noel Coward again in the audience and everybody's laughing. Yes, you enjoy that. It's it's a viable form and somebody is going to do it. I, I really think so. I really think that the creative mind is going to say, yeah, we've done enough of these kind of dramedies, which often are very, very good. I mean, it hacks on on HBO right now. It's so a very good. good show, right? Very good show. It's not a sitcom to me. It's it's this new form. It has some comedy in it, but it's a, basically a little film every week that has a little humor in it. It's not a sitcom. It's not jokes in it, per se, although she does a stand-up joke now and then. But that that's fine, and that's great. And, you know, Sex and the City did that and did many, 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 many episodes. Somebody, I think, is going to say, you know what? I'm going to do the old-fashioned, you know, in front of an audience show and I'm going to try to make it work on Amazon or Netflix and see what happens. Well, I'm a writer, Bill, and I have one that I'm hoping is one of these places might pick Go up one it, day. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I am so excited for the rest of these episodes of this show. I think it's fantastic. But before I let you go, I do want to ask you some late night questions because I also think right if anyone hasn't watched the story of late night or the accompanying podcast – both phenomenal. I, some of the best th- things I've seen in years, but I thought it was so good. Conan O'Brien, though, he's moving over from TBS to uh, HBO Max. And I wonder, yeah. um, I know that happened after sort of the documentary had wrapped, but I wonder what oh, yeah. you make of that and and sort of the future of late night TV. Well, obviously, Conan did it for so long. It's not surprising that he wanted to move on. He. Uh, in, in terms of overall service, he's up there with Carson and Letterman in terms of years and all that. And God knows he did so much breakthrough stuff. When, when I look, when they did highlights, I was like, look at the stuff this guy did. I mean, come on. So original. So I look forward to what he's going to do. I think he'll do funny stuff. It won't be in this in the late night format, but a lot of stuff he did was will work anywhere. <laughs> it's just going to work anywhere. And I, and I always think Honor will come up with funny stuff. Um, I think the format, obviously, there's too many shows, okay? You can't have 45 late-night shows, and they can't, and they're not watched late at night anymore much. I, I don't want to dismiss that because I do think that there's an audience of people who come home from work, and, they don't, and they're and they like, oh, you know, Colbert's on. I think I'll watch, you know, and, and they do watch that. There's still, I think, a feeling, let, let me wrap my day up. But the idea of watching in the way people used to with, I can't miss Letterman, I got to watch Conan. You didn't have to do that because you could see it the next day. So, so that is a big, big change, a big change. But as I pointed out, especially in the podcast, there's certain elements to this that are so appealing because it's topical. It's right happening that day. That's really important to why it works. If you like the host, you gravitate to it and you feel a certain connection if you do this over a long period of time. And the other thing is it's cheap. It's a really cheap form of television. It's not as cheap as it used to be. But when Steve Allen started this show, his producer made a decision. If you're going to be a guest on our show, we're not going to pay you anything more than scale. And that was a gigantic decision. So they get guests for very little money. They get guests for very little money. You pay the host a lot of money. But you then have five nights a week of an hour of advertising. You can amortize a whole lot of money that way. It's a, it, the format can still work, I think, economically, even though the audience has shrunk. So I still think if you're a great talent, I think Amber Ruffin is going to be a great star in late night. I think she's great. Uh, I think if you're a, a talented person who can handle this format, who has charm and appeal, you've got to have that. You've got to be able to relate to people. 
I think it's a great format and, and we'll, there'll be some continuation of this, even though you may have, you know, eight shows instead of 15. Did Letterman, Letterman, Leno, Conan, did they get uh, annoyed with you during all of your coverage? Were they supportive of your coverage? Like how, what was the vibe? They never, ever got mad, ever. None of those guys, because I included them, I talked to them and they all agreed it was all true that I didn't go after anybody. I didn't try to embarrass anybody. I just told the story. I, I remember uh, Warren Littlefield, who was the head of NBC, had a very embarrassing episode in, in the late shift where he was, he was called by Leno and he's on the toilet, right? And he told me the story that he was on the toilet. And so he wrote, and he, and he said to me after read the book, he said, some of this, I don't look great in some of this, but every word is true. Oh. What's better than that? And I was like, yes, of course. And Letterman sent me a beautiful note. He said, you know, this uh, congratulations. Very uh, Leno, I was worried about Leno after the first book. Uh, and I sent I sent both guys first copies because I said, I got to get, I'm being fair. I got to give him the, and Letterman wrote the note and Leno called me the next day. And I remember saying to my, my wife, let it go to the message machine. I, 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 I'm a little concerned. <laughs> and he, he was like, hey, I, I, all I can say is when they make the movie, get uh, Lorenzo Lamas to play me. And he laughed about it. And I was like, well, he's fine, too. And then both of them continued to talk to me. And Conan and I have had nothing but a tremendous relationship with since the day he started. And, uh, you know, he after the second episode with him when he lost the show and all that, I went to his house for the interview. I was in his house for like six hours that day. And he just unloaded like to a therapist. It was un it was unreal. But uh, I could feel his emotion. And, and he was very, that was very open and candid, you know. And the only way, the only way to do this, a book like this, like I try to do, is if you're going to create a scene where they tell Conan he's out, for example, right? There are him and his producer, Jeff Ross, and two NBC executives in the room. You got to get them all to talk to you. And they got to agree on what was said. And then you can write it as though you were there. And I, you know, that's the method I used. And that's why your books are so good. They're the, I, the best, the best, the best, best. Thanks. Will there be another late night book? Are you working on another book? Like, I, what can you tell me? I, I had a contract for the late night book and uh, it was, <laughs> it was interesting. It was as uh, Fallon was taking over basically late night, right? He was just taking over late night. And I started a little bit of work on it. And then <laughs> All the political stuff happened. That blew up, right? And I was like, okay, well, what's the story now? Okay, maybe it's the political stuff. And as it went along, I was like, I can only, I only would do one of these books when there was a story I wanted to tell. Only when there was a story. After the late shift, I was besieged by publishers. Do another book, do another book, do another book. And I was like, when there's another book, I'll do another book. And I had to feel like, and I went into the Conan J thing thinking, well, Jay going to primetime, no matter what, that's going to be a story. So I think there's a story. And I started it thinking that was a story, and it blew up into a much bigger and better story. <laughs> Not for Conan, unfortunately, but yes, a much bigger and better story. And that's what I want. So I, 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 I don't feel moved at the moment to write another late night book, especially because I did the documentary. Knowing that I was going to talk to you, I, I had to plead with you because I like your book so much. I love these series on CNN. I'm dying for a daytime sort of version of all of this, whether it be a book or a CNN series, because I'm a talk show junkie. And I think yeah. 
uh, morning daytime TV, there there is so much drama that happens, and I I think it's also so interesting, and there's a lot of compelling characters and stuff. So I, I just am pleading with you to do that. I know it's a lot of work, but I want it. <laughs> it is. It's a lot of work. Uh, you know, one of the things I think is made it harder to do books like I've done is that television has become so diffused. It's just diffused. I mean, everybody knew who Johnny Carson was. You didn't have to step back and talk to them. I have to explain who Desus and Mero are. You know, I got it. Nobody, not many people know that. And they're interesting guys, you know. And so it's it's much harder to do that kind of book. And even the Today Show, Good Morning America people are not quite the the big people they used to be. I mean, in daytime, you know, Ellen is leaving. Ellen is a story. Right. And I happen to be very, very friendly with Ellen. I, I got to know Ellen when she first started. I'm very friendly with Ellen. But I'm the... I don't. I don't. Bill, do you books. have to do an Ellen book. I need it. Like, oh my god, that would be amazing. Well, it, 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 you have to say to yourself, is it going to be worth doing if it's going to make a person that you know or and are friendly with really upset? Uh, that that is another thing. You do have to make a calculation. I I was I was considering doing a a formal biography of Lorne Michaels, for example. I think that's an inevitable book, right? Uh, and I've known him since the first year of Saturday Night Live. I interviewed him the first time the first year. So I've known him all that time. He's invited me to every anniversary show and all that. And I was noodling with this thinking, he's a fascinating story, but, you know, there are elements to his personality you're going to have to get into. And as I was noodling about that, he made a deal for an authorized biography. And I'm like, okay, that's probably the way to go. Well, Bill, I want the Ellen book because I feel like that's really juicy. I also think there's like an evolution between the Rosie talk show and the Ellen, uh, you know, segue into that. I don't know. There might be a connection there. I'm not sure. The View, there's yeah. so much turnover on The View. I, I don't you, know. I do know the, the producer of The View really well. He used to work for Letterman and he's a great oh, guy. Brian, right? I know yeah, Brian, Brian a little bit yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Icons, I'm sure I've mentioned this many a time on the show, but I use DoorDash all the time, and I'm sure so many of you are right there with me. When you need a meal, you hop on DoorDash. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about DoorDash's Dash Pass. It's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered to your door, helping you save lots of money, lots of time with every one of your DoorDash orders. So it's really a big saver with $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on your eligible orders. Dash Pass makes it super easy to save on restaurants or retail items, groceries, all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. Because I don't just get my meals. I also get a lot of groceries. You can get, again, retail items, local stuff. Dash Pass, too, pays for itself in just two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. Plus, Dash Pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions, member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month. So get more from your delivery for less. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash. Use code ICONIC24. That's ICONIC24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for Dash Pass. Subject to change, terms apply. Again, use code ICONIC24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for Dash Pass. Icons. 
Did you ever watch True Blood? I was obsessed. I thought the men on that show, Alexander Skarsgård, Ryan Quanton, I was in love with him when that show was airing. And I thought it was just so good. And so that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the new season of the Truest Blood podcast. The Truest Blood podcast is fantastic. If you haven't listened before, it's hosts Kristen Bauer and Deborah Ann Wall, who rewatch and tell true stories from the set of HBO's iconic series, True Blood. They discuss the episodes, the blood, both fake and real, and all the sexy bites in between. And this season of the podcast, they cover seasons three and four of True Blood, uh, where there's more werewolves, witches, and vampire royalty on the show. Plus, they have really great people who worked behind the scenes of the show coming on and talking about the show. Lots of that to come. I think we're all pop culture junkies here. And one of the things that I love about pop culture is seeing how the sausage is made. And so I think that's why we're all going to be so excited to listen to the Truest Blood podcast. So check it out. uh, And also check out the show True Blood. Watch all episodes of True Blood on Max and listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Bill, I will devour anything you put out. I know sometimes it's hard when you're uh, writing or working on these things. Maybe you don't realize like what an impact it has, but I just have to say like I love your work so, so much. And uh, I just thank Thanks. you. I hope everyone checks out the history of sitcoms on CNN. Uh, check out Bill's books. And uh, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time. Anything else you want to let listeners I know? I just want to say, Danny, the, the date is July 11th, right? That's that's when the show starts. Two episodes that night, eight episodes in all. Tremendous number of the biggest names in sitcoms are in this show. Tremendous. We we interviewed 185 people, so it it, it really is worth your while to dive in. And if you if you love the genre of sitcoms, you really should dive into this one. Okay, but wait, is there another CNN series coming after the sitcom I'm sorry. one? Did I say CNN? It's CNN, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but is CNN. there a, is there another CNN docu series after this one? Well, we just did two. I mean, I I'm only one man. Yes, yeah, but Bill, I need. Say. I know, but I saw. See, I didn't even know the sitcom one was coming, and then I saw a commercial for it, and I was fever- feverishly emailing CNN people. I'm like, oh my god, I'm so excited for this one. So, I don't. Know. I'm excited. Well, I'll have to give them your advice that we should continue. <laughs> yes, Bill. Where can people find you on social media? I'm at uh, on Twitter on Twitter at, at WJ Carter. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time. If you're uh, listening to this podcast, thank you all for listening. Uh, Subscribe, rate, comment, all of those things. Uh, Thank you, Bill. Danny, thanks for all those nice words. Really appreciate it. Great.
Thanks for listening to the show today. I want to encourage you all to go to acast.com slash everything iconic. You could find all of the episodes of Everything Iconic there, and you could check out other Acast podcasts, acast.com slash everything iconic.